0: Let's study God's Word. We're in Numbers chapter 13 this morning. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to cool it down and warm up our hearts, right? Numbers 13. Throughout the summer, we've been kind of looking at some lesser-known, kind of obscure uh, characters in the Bible that we may never have studied before, or we may never have even noticed before. Um, And we're looking at primarily the decisions that they made and how the decisions that they made set the course of action for their lives. Um, and how they were constantly, in, in pretty much each, each case, under pressure in their culture, in wherever they were, to conform to what society wanted. And yet, for the most part, um, they chose not to do that. Now, we've looked at some very interesting people like Rahab and Abigail and Josiah and Nathan, who were all people that kind of stood stood firm and and didn't yield and made decisions that were were challenging uh, really for them personally and socially. And when they did that, and when we do that, the Spirit not only increases our confidence and increases our boldness uh, to keep making decisions like that, but we also have seen throughout these studies, and we'll see it again this morning, uh, the measure of influence that we have on other people as we take a stand for the Lord. So, what, what we're going for here really is to understand that the choices we make and the stance that we take for the Lord really has impact on other people. Now, there's no guarantee of that, and we're really going to see that in the study this morning. There's no guarantee that when we stand for the Lord, that when we share the gospel, that when we are set apart, that when we uh, live as an example of what it is to be like Christ, There's no guarantee that people around us are going to be awakened spiritually. There's no guarantee that they're going to follow the Lord. And many times that's discouraging to us because we say, well, I took a stand and I I talked about the gospel. I kind of went out on the limb and and shared Christ with somebody and they looked at me and rejected me. I remember a missions trip we took in 19, uh, I guess it was 1992 uh, to England. I took 21 singles to England and we spent 10 days on the streets of London taking surveys and talking to people about the Lord. And of the vast majority of people we talked to, and I think it was over 450 people that we had a personal one-on-one conversation with about the Lord, um, we saw very few that actually gave their life to the Lord. Many, Many hearts were awakened, and people said, well, let me think about it some more. But I remember people being rejected that were on our team and coming back heartbroken saying... The person was so close, but then they just turned back, and they refused to to give in. Many times that happens. When we share the gospel or we take a stand for the Lord, a lot of times people don't follow, but that shouldn't deter us because we don't know what the Holy Spirit's going to do in their hearts after that. If we plant a seed, as Paul says, somebody may come along and water it later, like Paul says Apollos did in 1 Corinthians. So we have to trust the Holy Spirit that our faithful obedience will then inspire people to trust Christ, and it will also inspire the people around us, the believers around us, to do the same thing. Now, the person we're going to study this morning here in Numbers chapter 13 is a man named Caleb. And many of you have probably heard about Caleb before, but he's the kind of uh, kind of underrated person who sits in the background or seems to sit in the background. We probably don't know a lot about him. Joshua is more prominent. Joshua is the one who gets the word from the Lord. Joshua is the one who was chosen to lead the people across the Jordan into, into Canaan. And Joshua even has a book named after him Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So we always talk about Joshua, and what a great leader he was. Now he stayed faithful to the Lord. Some of us have a plaque in our house, Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Joshua is a great leader. But we don't talk enough about Caleb. Caleb didn't have all those positions. He didn't have all those things put on his life. But that doesn't mean he's not just as important. So often we give credit or we pay attention to the people who are out front. And we maybe have a latent desire to be one of them, to be, to be up in a position of prominence. But I want to tell you, having a position of prominence or having a position of leadership has its own dangers. And the devil works even harder to tempt with pride and to tempt with self-sufficiency and to tempt not to depend on the Lord. So there's a lot to be said for not being out front. There's a lot to be said for being humble and faithful and serve the Lord with with just dependence and and a great diligence. That's Caleb. Now, again, we may not know very much about him. Uh, We if, unless we've really studied his life, and I've never really studied his life in depth, unless we've done that, we probably can't name three things that he's done or said that are that are important. And yet, what I love about this is I've studied this week is the power of his convictions and how it influences people, even if they don't respond right away, it influences them in the long term. So there are really some... Important spiritual principles, I'm going to ask you to have a pen and a paper this morning. Again, when we study, we don't just read, we write things down. So let's really interact with the text this morning, and I really pray this will be an encouragement uh, to us to how to live as disciples. Now, very familiar part of Scripture. Um, Let's just remind ourselves of the historical background for a minute, because it, it kind of gives us an explanation, not an excuse, but it gives us an explanation for how the people respond. If you've taken the Bible Study Methods course, you know that when we chart a, a book of Scripture or when we chart a passage of Scripture, that we divide it up into logical sections of where, where the transitions take place. And then over each section, we give it a title to try to describe very specifically and very unique to that part of Scripture what it's about. Well, if you took Numbers 11 to Numbers 14 and made that a section, I think a good title for it would be something like whining and complaining, or these people are never satisfied, or there's always something. Some kind of title that would say, here's what's going on, and what's going on here is Israel's griping. And Israel won't stop griping. And Israel can't find anything good in all the things that God's doing for them. They're walking, and they're discontented, and they're miserable, and they're thinking about themselves, and they start to complain and cry out, we need something to eat, and we need bread, and and then God sends bread straight from heaven, and it comes down every day, and then they say, well, we want some protein, because we're on a paleo diet, so we'd like some meat, so God sends quail that fly through, and they can just grab them and break their necks and eat. And then they say, well, we're kind of tired of quail and we're kind of tired of bread and and we want something else. And then they start to murmur against Moses and they start to blame him for their problems. And they say, we'd rather get rid of you and go back to Egypt. And then even his relatives, Miriam and Aaron, Aaron was the high priest. They start to complain and start to undermine and start to, to gripe against him. Even as God says in chapter 12, verse 3, that Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. But they're thinking selfishly, and they're thinking about their needs and their problems, and they just want it their way. See, the devil loves to push that. The devil loves to push that in the body of Christ, where we start to say, well, I want it how I want it, and I want it different than it already is. And that begins to fester. And when we allow that in our marriages, when we allow it in our families, we allow it in our church, we allow it in our relationships, that starts to undermine and fester and create all kinds of problems. Now, what's amazing about the Lord is God is unbelievably patient during this time. God is unbelievably gracious, even though if you look at chapter 12, verse 9, it says the anger of the Lord burned against them. But God's plan was still in place. And he said, I'm still going to bring you to the promised land because I promised that to you. I told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, there's going to be a land. And he established boundaries of it. He said, it'll be from here to here to here to here. It's going to be your land. You'll occupy it. Eventually, your people are going to settle there. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And I'm going to bless you and be your God. Now God has brought Israel out of Egypt. He's brought them through the wilderness, and he's brought them to the edge of the promised land. And he says to Moses, send some guys to go in and scope it out. So Moses picks 12 men, one from each tribe, a leader from each tribe, to go and look at it. Now there's a very important detail tucked in here that we don't want to miss. Because if you just look at chapter 12, uh, excuse me, chapter uh, 13, verses 1 to 6, uh, is it 1 to 16? Let me see. No, verses 1 to 10. If you just look at that section, you see this list of men, and it's kind of boring, and there are a bunch of names we can't pronounce, and you go, there's nothing really I need to go look out there. Let me just hop down to verse 11. But don't do that. It's so crucial that we study every word and make sure we see exactly what the Spirit is recorded because it influences what we learn. So look at chapter 13 and verse 2. Send out for yourself men, the Lord's speaking here, verse 1. Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each land of their father's tribe, everyone a leader among them. Now, don't miss the detail of verse 2. Because I want you to notice that the first thing that's happening here is that the Lord is speaking. This is a direct word from God to Moses. And I want you to notice what he says and what he doesn't say. Here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, send out men to spy out the land of Canaan To see if you'll be able to go in and and develop a strategy so that you can conquer it. Does anybody see that in their text? That God says, figure out if you can win this battle. What he does say is, send out men to spy out the land of Canaan. Read the next line with me. Which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. I want you to say that with me again because I couldn't hear you. Which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Now, that's definitive, right? Is there any question there? Is there any doubt of what God is going to do? Not what He hopes to do. Not what might happen if the people obey. This is not a conditional covenant. If you do this, I'll do this. This is unconditional. This is what God's going to do. He says, send out men. Put them in the land. Let them look at it. Because I want them to see what I am going to do. To give to you. Now that's a promise. God can't break his promises and it wasn't new. it wasn't like they had never heard that before. It wasn't like they're going wow this is a this is a change of plan It wasn't like they were caught off guard. God had covenanted them uh, uh, with them about this. So everything was in place, All the way back to the time of Abraham. He had intentionally and clearly brought them out of Egypt and delivered them from bondage to get to this place. But just in case they missed it, or just in case they forgot, he says, let me remind you again. Send men into the land. And this is not an expedition to see if there's potential for you to win. I am simply going to give you a preview. I'm simply going to give you an advanced picture of what I have already secured to you, what I have promised you, what I have led you to, and what you are going to go up and occupy if you get your hearts right. Now, why do I spend so much time on that? Because we have to understand just how clear and definitive God is when we see their reaction. Because there's zero uncertainty here. Moses gets a direct word from the Lord. And God says, this is certain. No matter what you see. No matter what you experience. No matter how much the obstacles look big. No matter how uncertain the strategy is to you right now. Because I'm not going to reveal exactly what's going to happen. Don't get discouraged. Don't be fearful. Don't doubt at this point. Because I want you to accept what I've promised. Now, the Lord doesn't say evaluate. He says occupy. He doesn't say try to figure out a plan. He says assess what you're going to to receive. Moses even says in verse 17, look at it for a second, find out what the land looks like, how many people there are, how strong they are. Whether they're out in the open or fortress, how fruitful land is. In fact, while you're there, bring back some fruit. It shows that he doesn't anticipate trouble. He anticipates that they're going to bring back for the people evidence of just how faithful God is. And remember, these guys aren't novices. These aren't, well, let's just find 12 guys that are kind of courageous. Hey, anybody want to be a spy? Okay, you guys go over there, and we'll kind of assess whether you're, you're good candidates to go in and spy. Now, he says, every tribe pick a leader. Every tribe, pick somebody that that is proven in their character, proven in their faith, proven in their leadership, that is courageous, that trusts in the Lord, that's confident, that, that will hope in the Lord for what he's going to do. Pick leaders. Pick the heads of tribes. Get those guys. They're going to be the ones that have been offering strength and confidence to us as we wander. Now, pick one from every tribe and gather them with me because they're going to be our spies. It seems like this is going to go well. All the spies have to go in and do is detail what is already a foregone conclusion. Does everybody have that yet? This is a foregone conclusion. This is certain. This land is theirs. Read what happens next in verse 25. If I can see my Bible. When they returned... From spying on the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey and this is the fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. And the uh, Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country. And the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Now, every word is important. So look at what each says and what it indicates about their spiritual perspective. As they come in, they get this word. The 12 come back, and I wonder what the conversation was like. I wonder what the discussion was among the 12. They come back after 40 days, 40 days in the Bible is always the sign of testing. It's always the indication that testing is going on. So there's a spiritual test that's taking place for the nation of Israel at this point. They're having to to reconcile, God is looking at whether they're going to really be dependent on Him, whether they're really going to trust Him for what He's already provided. So at the end of 40 days, the spies come back and they go straight to Moses and Aaron and they're in front of all the people, the text is clear that everybody's there. Everybody's gathered to hear the report and see the fruit and and to see what's going on. And they say, you know what? Just like God said, it's flowing with milk and honey. There's abundance. We brought back some of the fruit like you told us to. And this, this fruit is wonderful. These are two pieces of strong evidence that God has kept his word. Now I want you to look at the very, very key word in verse 28. But they say, what's the word there? Nevertheless. They're holding the fruit. They're saying the land flows with milk and honey. We looked at it for 40 days. It's abundant. But nevertheless. How many know that nevertheless is never a faith word? Nevertheless. God's been faithful. God's kept his word. We've seen evidence of it. It looks good. We've heard the promise of God. We know Abraham. He's our forefather. We know God said this is the land. God brought us out of Egypt to get us to this place. Nevertheless, there are some problems. Don't ever get caught up in a nevertheless attitude in your walk. May God deliver us from the nevertheless attitude because it's a self word. It's a word that says despite the evidence Despite the leading of God. Despite the promise of God. Despite the presence of God. Listen now, this is hard. I'm still going to look at the obstacles and I'm still going to fear them instead of trusting in God's help. Despite all God's done and all his faithfulness and his word and his presence and his promise and his power, despite all of that, nevertheless, there's a problem here and it worries me and I'm going to be timid and I'm going to equivocate a little bit because I can't really see how it's going to resolve itself. That will never draw us closer to Christ. It will only draw us farther away. The Lord calls us to confident And bold faith. And the Spirit of God equips us to be unhesitant and to be fervent. To be more forward in that faith. And to call others to trust in Him too. And that's what Caleb does. Despite the report of the spies, look at what Caleb does starting in verse 30. It says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses. And he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it. For we will surely overcome it. But the men, verse 31, who had gone up with them said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied upon, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw are men of great size. Now the words here are important. Look at what happens. Go back to verse 30. It says that Caleb quiets the people. What does that tell us? It tells us when the people first heard the response, there was a lot of grumbling and noise. We used to call it general crowd noise. Kind of, you hear it? You ever seen that? crowd of people gets together and they're all kind of saying things and murmuring to each other and talking and and everybody's kind of stirred up and uptight. Did you hear what they said? Oh no, the people are big. There's there's that kind of going on. So Caleb says, hold on, time out. Time out. Shh. Shh. Listen. Everybody be quiet for a minute. Look at what he says. By all means we should go up. There's full confidence that this is the right thing to do. And then look at the second thing he says. Not only should we go up, we should take possession of it. Now that line's the key. He doesn't say, by all means, we should go up, develop a battle plan, and go in and conquer. He says, we should go up and take possession. That's not just semantics. That's a different emphasis. He's not saying, we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to figure this out. We're going to have to somehow overcome. I I hope we can do it, but I'm pretty confident we can. So let's get together. Let's get the generals together, and let's figure this out. I'm pretty sure we can do this. That's not what he's saying. Look, people, stop talking. This land is ours. This land is promised by God, and we need to go take possession On the word of the Lord. But look at what the people say. Notice the pronouns. Notice the nouns. We, not God, we are not able, more like not willing. We are not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than us. Now the pronouns are important because they haven't even fought the people yet. Everybody but 12 hasn't even seen the people yet. They're taking the word of faithless spies. And they're saying, we can't do it. Can't do it. We do not have the power. We do not have the strength. We cannot overcome them because they are bigger than we. So it's it's impossible. Not even a discussion. And besides, they said that the land devours its inhabitants. To which I would say, then how are people still living there? See, the lack of logic is stunning, isn't it? Well, the land's so strong, it devours the inhabitants. Okay, but there are people living there, right? So does the land just swallow up the people, or what's, what's going on there? Because you're telling me the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the Hittites are all over the place, but you're also saying that the, that the land eats everybody alive. And oh, there are giants and the sons of Anak are there and we don't we don't know what to do. See, there's so many things wrong here. Look at the text for a minute. The emphasis on the people who are in the way, not on the power of the Lord. They, they concentrate on the people, not the power. And then the assumption that they won't be able to win even though they have the Lord's assurance of it. And, and then... The exaggeration of the problem instead of the expectation of the Lord's provision. You know, it's always a good indication that we're not trusting the Lord when we overstate the problem. When, when we make it bigger than it actually is. And yet, the Bible tells us What? Nothing is impossible with God. How many know that's true this morning? That nothing is impossible with God. Now, do we just say that? Is that just words? Is it a nice song that the choir sings? Nothing, nothing at all is impossible. Is that just words? Or is that the way we live? Is that what we really believe? Do we believe that God can heal broken marriages? Because he has in this church. Do we believe that God can cure cancer? Because he has in this church. Do we believe that God can comfort us in emotional pain? Because he has in this church. Do we believe that God can redeem a soul from sin and secure it as his own forever as a child of God? Because he has in this church. Nothing is impossible with God. Do we really believe that? Because the people here don't. Couple sentences, a couple people saying, I don't know, and they get all worked up and they start to complain and they start to murmur. At, at the suggestion of defeat, they get stirred up because negativity always spreads faster than truth. And it's so I want to use the word depressing because I think it's accurate. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. If if this weren't so sad, it would almost be laughable. All the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel, notice how many times the Holy Spirit uses the word all, All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and all the congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, and would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Just on the word of a couple people. They haven't even seen the problem. They're assuming the problem. And it says, notice the, the word all. They all yell and cry and weep all night. There's no joy in the presence of God. And they all complain against Moses and Aaron because there's no faith in God's plan. And they all blame the Lord for the situation. No gratitude. No remembering what had just happened when they walked through the Red Sea and when God sent bread from heaven and when quail flew through and God was providing day after day after day. There's no gratitude of that. And then they all want to go back to Egypt. No hope. No confidence. See how messed up our perspective gets when we don't trust the Lord? It doesn't take much. It wasn't like the report was earth shattering. You know, they got tanks. And we've got camels. They've got heavy artillery. They are fortified. Their city's walls are plated with silver and iron. There is no way we're going to win. We're outnumbered 10 to 1. They don't give that kind of report. They just say, well... There are a lot of people, and the land's kind of a little rugged, and, and they're, they're pretty tall, and they look kind of strong, so we can't do this. Remember, they had just gotten out of bondage and slavery in Egypt, which is the strongest nation in the world, got to deliver them, and they had just walked through an ocean Because God had parted the waters and given them dry ground. And they had just seen God's provision after provision after provision. But the fear and distrust that they have at this point makes them quick to blame God and not trust in his promise. And they think the worst. Listen, this happens so easily to us. And it is so subtle When fear insidiously creeps in and starts to affect our thinking and we start to think only with the earthly instead of the heavenly. That's what they're doing. They're materially focused rather than supernaturally confident. But there's one guy, we don't even see Joshua here, there's one guy that says, wait a minute. Don't Listen to them. Don't buy into these lies. This land is ours, and we need to go get it. Now, there are a couple details. Let's draw this to conclusion. There are a couple details about Caleb that really stand out here, and, and I think we can apply them to our everyday lives because more and more we are facing and we are going to face this kind of situation. More and more people are going to deny the Lord. More and more people are going to reject the Lord. More and more people are going to refuse to trust the Lord than to stand for Him. And what's sobering about this passage is this is the people of God. This is God's chosen people, the ones who had walked out by God's hand out of Egypt. But, but they didn't sustain their trust in God. It was so temporary. And they only gave God credit when God gave them exactly what they wanted. They only gave God credit when God made it easy. That's not faith. Trusting in God isn't just, well, God's really blessed me this month and praised His name, and I'm going to trust Him so much." But then when crisis comes, we say, "Well, I don't know what the Lord's doing, and I don't know why He's being so mean, and I'm really struggling in my trust." Listen, that's, that's not faith. That's conditional willingness. That's entitlement that that goes all throughout our culture. Well, I'll I'll do this as long as you give me that. But as soon as you give me hardship, Lord, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. I'm not going to trust you. Look at the four distinguishing marks. Maybe write these down. Four distinguishing marks of the faith and character of Caleb. These are pretty simple, but we need to hear them. Number one, strong faith was his default. Strong faith was Caleb's default. He didn't entertain doubt or fear because doubt or fear was not an option for him. When we trust the Lord, and this is a bold, hard statement, when we trust the Lord, doubt and and, um, fear are not an option. If the Lord said it and his word is truth and he promises to provide and he gives us his spirit, then that's enough. For Caleb, it was enough. The people are big. The land is tough. What's your point? I like to think that at some point, Caleb looked at them and said, what's your point? Okay. Yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people. And the people seem pretty strong. And they're pretty well organized. We're kind of ragtag. We're wandering through the wilderness. Been in slavery for 400 years. And, And yes, the land is formidable. There's not a lot of trees. There's not a lot of places for us to hide. Not really sure how we're going to conquer some of these cities. We've been there 40 days. We've been scoping it out. I'm telling you, it looks wonderful. God's word has been fulfilled. Everything he said about it is right. But, but yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be a challenge. But you know what? We have the Lord. So, so stop imagining a problem when we've been told to go take possession. People don't want to think like that. You know, it's so awesome. I've been saved 40 years. I've learned this more in the last 10 years than ever. It is so awesome when we get to a place where there is no option other than to trust. And it is even more awesome when we get to a place where we have no desire to do anything but trust. Is the Lord sufficient? Yes. Is the Lord faithful? Of course, Did God promise to provide? Yes. Has God ever not been faithful? No. Does God say he'll never leave us or forsake us? Yes. Does God promise that his people will never beg for bread? That he clothes the birds and the animals and and the flowers? That he takes care of all this? And and how much more precious are we? He sent Christ to die for us. Will he provide? Yes. So, So what more do we need? Did God say, I'll give you my spirit, and he'll give you power and strength and guidance, and he'll teach you what it is to be like Christ? Does he say that? Yes. Well, then, uh, what's the problem? And and then he says, I'll make you an overcomer. See, faith was his default. He didn't have a, a, a... A place. He didn't have a compartment where he said, when life gets tough, I'm going to be fearful. He just said, I'm going to trust the Lord. Oh, God, that we would get to that place in our lives. That we would become people whose faith is that strong. That God would make me a person that has faith that strong. Second, would you see that his reality was filtered through God's perspective. His reality was filtered through God's perspective. He had seen the land. He had seen the people. He had seen the fortified cities. But here's how Caleb thought. He said, okay, all those are there. But who can stand against the plan of the Lord? See, so often we get preoccupied with with the obstacles. And when we look at the obstacles, we start to see them as immovable realities. We may have been saved dozens of years But we begin to silently panic. We begin to silently lose confidence because we can't possibly see how it's going to work out, let alone how there's going to be victory. Caleb doesn't think that way. He isn't oblivious. He's not naive. He's not uh, uh, closing his eyes to the problem. But he says to himself, who can stand against the Lord? Who can stand against the Lord? God's not nervous today, God is not nervous today about what's going on in the world. We are. God's not fearful going, wow, look at that, look at what's going on in the Middle East. I don't know what I'm going to do. He's not, he's not worried today that people are opposing his work. He's not, he's not fretting today that the spiritual climate of the world is becoming increasingly inhospitable to Christianity. So he says to us, why should you be? I'm God, I'm in charge, and I'm your God. I'm your Redeemer, I'm your Lord, I'm your Savior. And Caleb says, listen, we need to get it together. Our hearts need to be quiet, because when the Lord is at work, there is peace. And he wants them to know that peace and that confidence. Just like we should want every person that doesn't know Jesus Christ to know the peace and confidence that we have in trusting in Christ. Reality stinks right now. It's scary. It's frightening. It's nerve-wracking. But filter it through God's perspective. Third, would you see that incorrect popular opinion didn't influence him? Incorrect popular opinion did not influence him. The people are already starting to show doubt by chapter 13, verse 29, which is why Caleb stands up in verse 30 and says, look, He's not intimidated. He doesn't soften his conviction in order to pacify them. Instead, he speaks to influence, not to integrate. Listen now, this is so important. When he speaks, he speaks to influence, not to integrate. This is so crucial right now For believers and for the church at a time when the American church is more concerned about conforming to try to make a difference rather than speaking truth and relying on the Holy Spirit. When Paul went to Corinth, he did not go to the temple of Diana and hang out so he would fit in. He did not alter his message so that there would be common ground. He spoke truth. I heard about a church yesterday, and I want to be careful because I don't want to denigrate the work of the Lord, but heard about a church yesterday that opened its service by playing a music video by Ozzy Osbourne. And the rationale was, and, and this is a, a kind of a dir- almost a direct quote, while his theology is different, there are some things in the song that we can identify with. I'm sorry, Ozzy Osbourne doesn't have theology Theology is the worship and study of God. He doesn't believe in God. So why would a church use that ostensibly with the goal of having a conversation with somebody that might connect with that? Paul didn't do that when he went to Corinth. Jesus didn't do that when he talked to people. Caleb doesn't do it here. He's not looking for agreement. He's not trying to say, hey, look, can't we all just get along? Can, can, we, can we come to some, some consensus here? Let's, let's, try to, let's try to figure out a plan and, and everybody, come on, let's hug it out here. Let, let's, no, he says, here's the truth. God is faithful. God promised we need to go in and take possession. I want you to believe what's right. God has given us his word. The only way to do that, the only way to speak with influence is to talk directly about the Lord. Listen, that's going to put us on the outer edge. That's going to set us apart as spiritual nonconformists. But it's the only way the message will be heard. Would anyone in the crowd have listened to this message if He had agreed with the word of the spies. He had to stand up and say, nope, their opinion, their analysis is wrong. God has spoken, and we need to follow it. And then look at the last thought. He called people to spiritual decision. Go to chapter 14, verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and those who had spied out the land, of those who spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, the land which we pass through to spy is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord's pleased with us, then he'll bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey." Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the people said, excuse me, all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Let's bring this to a close. Joshua, excuse me, Caleb brought people to a spiritual decision. When the problem is at its height, Caleb and Joshua speak to the unbelieving congregation and they make the choice obvious. Notice there's no equivocation. There's no uncertainty about the options. Look at what they say. The land is good. The Lord is with us. Which is almost rhetorical because he's brought them to this land which he promised them. And if he's pleased, he'll give us this land. So, here's what we cannot do. We cannot rebel against the Lord and what's the indicator of rebellion? How do we know often when we're in rebellion against the Lord? Look at it. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Tell me the next four words. And do not what? Do not fear. See, rebellion is almost always indicated by fear. And the enemy loves to stir fear in us. He loves to get us to fear people. He loves to get us to fear situations. He loves to get us to fear problems. If he can just develop fear in us, then we will not develop faith. So he says, listen, don't rebel now. Don't be fearful. Because here's why we don't have to be fearful. Look at the next line. Their protection has been removed. And here's our advantage. Believer, take strength in this this morning. Here's our advantage. The Lord is with us. And when the Lord is with us, there is nothing better. And when the Lord is with us, there is nothing to fear and nothing to worry about. He says, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The world is a scary place right now, but we can have confidence that God is Lord over everyone and everything, and he can thwart their plans. But how much are we crying out to him and saying, Lord, intervene. We beg you, intervene. We get worked up. We talk about it. We fret about it. We watch the news. We get uptight. We get all stirred up. And you know what? That's normal. That's natural. I'm not saying don't watch the news, although, too much can be a good thing, right? But how much are we right now crying out to the Lord and saying, God, you have to intervene? You have to work. You have to stop what is going on. You have to protect those believers that are getting torn apart and cut in half and persecuted and told to denounce their faith. Lord, we beg you to intervene. How much are we doing that? See, even despite the faithlessness of the people, look at one more verse and I'll pray. Look at verse 10. Despite the faithlessness of the people the glory of the Lord appears. Not because the people are picking up rocks and saying, you know what, we need to kill those four. Let's stone them. Let's go back to Egypt. And God says, you know what, I'm going to make my power visibly clear. He did that because Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb had said, God, you've got to work. So what will the Lord see of us? What will the Lord see about us seeking Him and calling Him and standing for His name? Our culture doesn't doubt and reject God any more than this crowd did. But here's what we're going to take away from this. When even a few people called on the Lord, God showed up. And even when a few people called on the Lord, God said, you know what? I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to discipline these people. But I am still going to fulfill my promise. And look at the one person. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to lie. I forgot I had this verse. Look at the one person he highlights in verse 24. He says, my servant Caleb... Because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring him into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I want to be described that way. Those who tested the Lord and those who didn't listen, they weren't going to see the land. In fact, they're about to wander for 40 years. God's about to say, all right, fine. You want to complain? I'll give you something to complain about. Because you've been faithless, because you've doubted me, because you didn't believe my promise, because you've rejected me, because I gave you all the evidence in the world, and you didn't want anything to do with me, here's what I'm going to do. You're going to wander and wander and wander and look at this desert for 40 years. But Caleb, look at it. But Caleb, he has a different spirit. And he's followed me fully. And he and his descendants are going to go in and take possession of the land. How is God going to define you and me? When God looks at you, when God looks at Paul Rhodes, does he say he has a different spirit? Listen, conformity is overrated. Conformity is overrated and it's misguided. We need to be people of God who have a different spirit. And having a different spirit comes from following the Lord fully. Not halfway, not not half-heartedly, not with one foot still in the world trying to manage it. No, listen, following God fully. And when we follow God fully... God says, you have a different spirit, and I am going to work in your life in ways you can't imagine. This is the choice. This is what's before us. We don't know if God can do it. We've looked at the evidence. We've looked at the promises. I don't know. Still got to still hedge our bets a little bit. Or no. No. God is faithful. God has kept his promise. God will provide. I'm going to follow him with every fiber of my being. And there is not going to be anything that will deter me. And God will bless that.